Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. Today we have two deluxe speakers, so I will let them introduce themselves. To my right, I have... Hi, I'm Ace Davis. I am the program manager at Bliss Cares. Pronouns are he, him, his, and program manager, I guess, can mean lots of different things. Specifically for me, we are a 340B organization, and so essentially all the savings that we receive, I use those dollars to put back into community-based programs. And I'm, I can't wait to hear more about those programs that I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about today. And to my left, I have... My name is Dr. Elena Cyrus. I am an assistant professor in the College of Medicine in the Department of Population Health Sciences. And I'm also an NIH-funded investigator, and I do a lot of work you know, historically, uh, HIV, substance use, violence, but now we've moved into COVID-19. But specifically, I have a study that is called TRUST, which stands for To Reach Unrestricted Services for Trans Women. And it's our flagship study that we started in Miami and now have moved over to Orlando. Ooh. And I can't wait to hear more as well, because I see a lot of convergence today. So today we're going to be talking about transgender individuals as a variant of human behavior. And uh, before we get started with uh, typical definitions, and we want to tell our listeners out there who may not be familiar with the topic, what do we understand by a transgender person? Trans as a word is more of an umbrella term, but transgender specifically is typically folks who identify as a gender that's not the sex that was assigned to them at birth. So some non-binary folks identify as trans, some do not, but it just means like other than the sex assigned to your birth. There is a lot of confusion out there when it comes to gender dysphoria mm -hmm. and being transgender. Can we kind of tease that out for our listeners? How are gender dysphoria, which is a disease, and nor a transgender person, a normal variant of human behavior, how are those different? Where is the fine line? So if I use the same definition that we just, you know, talked about, when we talk about transgender, it's more around identity. You know, what people think about themselves um, in terms of gender. But gender dysphoria is, as I understand it, more of a psychiatric diagnosis that some transgender individuals may experience, some may not. Being a cisgender person myself, this is all by self-report and my reading of the literature, but I understand that most transgender individuals may experience gender dysphoria at some point in their life, whether it's when they're transitioning, whether before it's, you know, they actually realize that they are non-binary or trans, but it's not a prolonged, it doesn't have to be a prolonged state. It can stop or it can continue. Yeah, and then it can also change depending on where you are in your transition. So for a lot of folks, perhaps at the beginning of their transition, they say, oh, I just want to go on hormones. I'm only dysphoric about the fact that I don't have facial hair or something, you know, as an example. And then they start hormones and then they go, wait, I'm dysphoric about my chest. And so then they have surgery. And then they, after that, say, oh, I am, I do have genital, genital dysphoria and then they'll have surgery. So like you said, it could start and stop at various points, but typically it's, well, always it's a physical relation. So if we have heard correctly, the transgender aspect is just that mismatch between how you identify yourself and the way and the sex that was assigned at birth. There's a, a little mismatch there in your head, right? You don't identify with that sex that was assigned to you at birth. And gender dysphoria is all that stress that comes from that mismatch, right? All the all the 
lack of identity that you are fighting you are fighting internally to try to understand and try to make sense of if if that makes if yeah. if i summarize it correctly yeah and the language obviously is perpetually changing so i began my medical transition 12 years ago in april and at that point it was gender identity disorder that was the medical definition or diagnosis and then it changed to gender dysphoria but also folks now are using gender euphoria instead so no longer do you need to experience like a uncomfortability with the gender it's more about are you experiencing positive feelings with the other gender or another gender so gender euphoria instead I love it. I love it because that actually gives that positive spin that we also try to give in all of our episodes in the podcast when we talk about challenges, but we also try to focus on the accomplishments that every single episode, every single topic that we try to discuss incorporates. So I appreciate that spin. For example, in the gay community, the term gay was derogatory at some point and the community actually embraced it and made it their own. So I, I guess, yes. <laughs> Now, can we have talked about transitioning, right? Once a person identifies as trans, there there may be several avenues and, and acknowledging that there's not a pathway that everybody will follow. Every story is different. Not all patients read the textbook and follow step-by-step step all the bullet points, right? What would be kind of a typical, if that's the word, procedure to go in a transition process or at least general processes or general steps that go in a transition process? Well, I would, yeah, I guess I could say like what the majority of folks I know have gone through. Um, typically, at least trans male slash trans masculine folks, if they go through all of these, maybe they'll stop at certain points. But typically, if they are to go through all the steps, it would be hormones, then probably top surgery. Some folks, it's in a reverse. That's typically the steps. And then perhaps a hysterectomy and then a phalloplasty or metodioplasty would usually follow after that. Typically trans women, similar or trans feminine people, hormones, breasts, and then maybe facial feminization surgery, maybe bottom surgery, maybe those would be flipped as well. I come, of course, from a more academic, external point of view. So I think my understanding of the transitioning, I also work with an endocrinologist who works uh, very closely with trans youth as they come in. Can I ask you a question? Is it, can I ask a question? Okay. I've, my understanding is that sometimes in that process, while, it, while people are transitioning, that they may identify as same sex on their way to deciding that they're actually non-binary or trans. Do you think that that's accurate or is that? You mean while, be, like af, after beginning a transition? No. So for example, with the trans women that I work with, a good number of them, when we interview them in our qualitative interviews, they describe that at some point in their life, they actually identified as a gay, like a gay cisgender man uh -huh. and then progressed on to becoming a trans woman. So I'm thinking more of like psychologically, is it easier in terms of family acceptance, community acceptance to come out in this sort of stepwise pattern? Or is that not a typical experience? And maybe just for trans women? I would say it's typical, yes. I think that it, it has a lot to do with, like you said, family acceptance, societal acceptance. Sometimes people just don't know that being trans even exists. And so they just think, oh, okay, well, I know I like men and people are saying I'm a man, so I must be a gay man, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that that is going to, or already is changing as folks are afforded the opportunity to transition younger. They don't feel like they have to kind of go through those steps. And they already know the language to use about themselves. 
but I do also know that there's a lot of folks and we'll be going off in different different direction, but I do know there's a lot of folks that during transitioning, they or perhaps opposed to their transition even would be a fear of losing that community because they feel like, oh, I'm going to lose my gay male friends or my lesbian friends. The other challenge that a lot of the women that I work with is um, or talk to is just living in Florida, living in the southeast region of the U.S. So, you know, if many people leave the country, they go to different parts of the country. If they're seeking, I think I, we have a number of providers here at UCF that have transgender clinics. And I know of maybe a couple of surgeons in the panhandle but there's yeah there's just not a lot so i wouldn't that all because and the other thing that i understand is that all the regulations and policies around insurance you know the psychologist the letters of recommendation that those vary by state yes but they also can vary by insurance companies so like if you are going with coverage based off of your employer, not employer, your insurance company, then sometimes they'll require different letters, different steps that you have to attain first. We'd like it if they followed the WPATH standards of care. (laughs) That would be ideal, but unfortunately that's not what's happening. But you're right. So, you know, for instance, in New York, the state of New York, they have insurance companies. uh, I I don't want to say required because I'm not 100% it's required, but I believe if it's fully insured insurance in the state of New York, they are required to cover facial feminization surgery. That doesn't really exist outside of there and I think California. Otherwise, folks have to get find an employer that has an inclusive coverage. So Apple, Boeing Air, some a few other Starbucks, they offer that. But otherwise, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and not everyone is able to be employed by those companies. And, you know, some folks are employed other places and they can't, you know, leave their job to work somewhere like that. So the only reason I bring up all these barriers and challenges is because, you know, in our cohort of trans individuals, I've been working with trans individuals maybe a little bit over 10 years. I started off in Peru first and then brought it, brought the research over to the U.S. Is that, you know, the timing of the transition is very dependent on some social, you know, environmental factors yeah and economic yeah yeah and economic so the endocrinologist that i work with dr alejandro diaz who's at nicklaus um, children's hospital in miami what he has seen in recent years is an overrepresentation of trans males in in clinic mm-hmm. and when he speaks with other endocrinologists in the country they're also saying they see this overrepresentation of trans males nobody understands why right but when we look at the social level what we see and then i would love to hear because again i come from such an academic perspective sometimes i think some of these things that we're seeing is it real or is it you know an aberration we're thinking that the social acceptance of a trans female Mm -hmm. is more difficult than a trans male in general for whatever reason and so trans females as they transition through adolescence into adulthood they're either sort of cast out from families, you know, this, and we lose them. We lose them in care, mm-hmm. whereas trans males tend to have more support. Can you speak to any of these? Because this is just all data-driven that yeah. we're seeing. Yeah. I would say, like, statistically speaking, I would agree with that, that, that trans men have more support from family members and from friends even. But I think that that has a lot to do with what society perceives as like feminine and masculine and where they put 
I guess not importance, but like value. Mm -hmm. So it's it's okay for someone to be more masculine and be a woman, even not not trans men or women, but you know, it's okay to be a masculine woman more so than it would be to be a feminine man. And so I think that it all ties into kind of that. So if like think about it, tomboys, like when you're a kid, tomboy yeah. doesn't have a negative connotation, but it's if you have crazy. yeah, but if you call like a little boy this is a bad word, but like a sissy or something, it's like a negative connotation, right? And so that's what people call little boys that act like feminine. So I think it has a lot to do with that. I think that more kids nowadays are just more accepting too, like in school and stuff, which I think helps as well. Now, here's one thing. When we talk about transitioning, uh, we jump into kind of the physical aspects of it. But is there any thinking health, you know, as a physical, social, and psychological well-being state uh is there any psychological aspects do people for example need to live as the other gender before even considering physical changes what is kind of you mentioned the w path Mm -hmm. so can you walk us through a little bit more of of those earlier steps w path is essentially they have a board of directors and they also have like an actual guide that shows what is the best like I guess track for somebody in terms of who's trans and how to like uh, from a medical standpoint how to take care of them essentially it's almost crazy um, and so yeah. the they kind of change it every couple of years to improve the the information but i think at this point a lot of providers are at least for hormones are doing informed consent you understand that these are the risk of taking this medication sign here you essentially get it that day as long as your lab so that it shows that you're okay. As far as surgery goes, it's a lot more at this point. So again, I started transitioning you know, medically 12 years ago. And at that point, it was, even if you weren't going through insurance, they required a lot of letters to even have surgery whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Now, for the most part, those surgery letters are for the sake of insurance. They're requiring it. So a lot more or a lot less gatekeeping, I would say, at this point. That makes complete sense. And I guess that goes in line with being, you know, living as your true self, whether in in whichever state of that transitioning process you are. If you already feel comfortable with that true self, uh, there's less, less gatekeeping, as you mentioned. Yeah, and it certainly differs based off of where you live, too, you know. So depending on the state, if you're in a rural area. I grew up in southern Maryland, which had no access to care. I had to wait till I was 18 to start medically transitioning, even though I expressed desire before that. There was nobody willing to help me at that point. So I think if somebody were to be living somewhere more progressive, maybe New York or something, that would have been possible. Is it is there still a requirement for, um, I think it's like a certain number of months of hormone use that you have to have before you begin? And then two letters, I think, or something from a, a psychologist. It, those So all those things are still... Sort of. Again, that's more like insurance-based. So as far as Typically, hormones, I think in a lot of places, they do informed consent. For top surgery or breast implants, I think most it's now one letter. And then for bottom surgery, lower surgery in general, they usually require two. And I don't know if historically they allowed this, but now I know that they'll allow if you have like your actual therapist that you see regularly, they can get someone who's a psychiatrist to co-sign off on that. So just one letter, but signed by two. That makes sense. So we have been talking also about some of the challenges that trans folks are facing nowadays. Can we talk a little bit about what we see in everyday practice, in clinical work, in social work with trans folks, and also what research is also showing at the population level, right? I would say, so from a 
I guess more medical standpoint, we we are specifically HIV STD treatment prevention. So from that standpoint, a lot of trans folks are not admitting that they're sexually active. And so I think that hinders folks sometimes um, in terms of getting like the proper testing and whatnot. But I think that they're just, again, that gender dysphoria has them so, I guess, wrapped up in that, that they don't even want to admit or be seen or, you know, have some, any sort of exams or anything like that. So that's definitely something I think people are getting better with as more providers become transliterate, transcompetent, people feel comfortable with them. As far as everything else goes, I mean, we're in Florida, like you were saying, in the, you know, the South, and there's, I'm sure everyone knows, they're the Don't Say Gay Bill, and that has a huge impact on the emotional state of folks. I think that, unfortunately, that's going to drive up the suicide rate. Kids aren't feeling supported. I know many people who the only person that they felt supported them in school was a specific teacher or maybe their guidance counselor. And so the idea of them not even be able to disclose that to them, I think that that's going to be a, a huge problem. And I think that, so I know that I'm not sure where the bill stands right now, but I went to lobby days back earlier this month and there was a bill that was being proposed by the same man who put for the don't say gay bill. And it was to allow for essentially discrimination based off of being trans, not only in like healthcare by a provider, but also by insurance. And so according to that, anyone could, and they, they call it, it's like they're based on their conscience. It's not even like religion anymore. Before they were like hiding it behind religion. Now they're hiding it behind conscience. So it's like based off of just, it's against your beliefs you don't have to help that person. You don't have to provide medical care, medical care to that person. And so that translates over into insurance as well because it's saying that if you disagree with it, you can deny someone care, a trans person care that you would provide to a cis person if it's trans specific. So for instance, if they're on hormones and it's they're on them because they're trans, you could deny them that. Or they, need a, they want a hysterectomy or need a hysterectomy but it's trans related, it's not related to something else. They can deny them that. So based on a conscientious objection. Based off of just yeah, it's against their I didn't know about this new bill. It's interesting to me the evolution of things sometimes. All I would say about that is that I find it contradictory against what we as the health and scientific community is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be promoting the health of all individuals independent of whatever their background is. And again, health, we should understand it as well as with that world health organization definition it's physical it's mental it's social it has all those three aspects that we should be supporting right but no one says you're only entitled to that if you're rich yeah. or <laughs> if you're a man and you know it, it's for everybody and so when i started doing research with trans individuals i didn't know anything about transgender anything i just knew as an epidemiologist in the data that every single time you looked at any clinical outcome you would all it's like Native Americans or indigenous sorry, Indians. Sorry. You would always see transgender individuals at the bottom, bottom of everything. Yeah. Just like with indigenous, you all, but nobody, does, but at that time, no one was doing any research. Right. No one was, they would, they would conflate. They would conflate with men who have sex with men or other LGBTQI populations, but no one, yeah, I remember going to NIH and my program officer saying to me, we're never going to fund. It's too small of a population and it, it's no impact. You know? Can you tell our listeners your current cohort, how big it is? Oh, well, we have multiple cohorts. We had a cohort in Peru that was 747. It was the largest biobehavioral survey. No, and the thing is, is that as there's more visibility, you know, because even for the research, we don't really say transgender person anymore. We talk about transgender experience. 
because it really is sort of fluid. There are some people who decide to have affirmation surgery. There are some people who do not. We, we don't really stick to these type of clinical definitions. We really let the individual express, you know, what whatever they tell us, that's what we report. We don't yeah. take them to the back of a room to check anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You tell me, I believe you. And you're a data-driven yeah. scientist, Dr. Cyrus. So what, what is your research showing about concerns that we should have that trans folks are facing now yeah so trans folks are similar to many other underrepresented groups and that i that i work with i work with immigrants i, I work with racial and ethnic uh, minorities and if you ask me right now i would have to divide it there's a pre-covid era and a post-covid era trans individuals pre-covid they weren't doing that great <laughs> you know what i mean we were at all levels in research they were underrepresented uh, classically so there was never any data to look at things like safety effectiveness and these types of things in care no one considered them in terms of you know what was a transgender friendly reception were the providers trained in terminology there wasn't things in the medical curriculum transliterate as you mentioned yeah, Ace. yeah they, they was sort of like you know just a very very fringe population and then I would even go so far as to divide between individuals who had more of a masculine experience versus those who had a feminine it's it's totally different so for trans males what we saw at a population level we didn't really see anything because they were really good at going stealth they assimilate and you know while that's good on one hand because it's you know it's easier socially it's really bad public health wise because they're not as you know they're not coming into clinic they're not doing PAPs and, you know, all of these things that you, you have to do for preventive care for whatever reason, either because they didn't want to, because they were embarrassed or because they didn't know where to go. That's trans males. And then there's a bunch of other things going on with trans males that we see that we don't see among trans women. Higher rates of obesity, for example, starting from adolescence, moving on. Several things. Now, with trans females, uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, we see sort of... If most of the cohort that I work with, classically, even if they came from a family that had money or affluence, when they transition, they themselves fall beneath the poverty line. And what's interesting to me in my data with trans women, the education level is high. So every, like, you know, more than 75% of the population either have a high school degree or some level of college preparatory training. So the reason that they're not in the job force is not because they're not trained or skilled. It's literally because they, they don't have an opportunity or they don't have the chance, right? So if I if I saw, you know, a bunch of people who had eighth grade level education, then that would correlate to me. I would say, okay, well, yes, these people are not moving. There's no social progression. But when I see a bunch of people who are educated, and then when you speak to trans women, so they have to be intelligent to survive. <laughs> and to survive in the Southeast, I mean, you really have to be savvy and know how to navigate right so you, you can't you can't be stupid and, and like a lot of the women it's missed opportunities you know uh, missed opportunities where you could have some of these you believe i'll even work with people who before they transitioned were doctors lawyers and then once they transition they can't practice because they can't go under their dead name right so you know in a time now where we are talking about the big recession, um, not recession, but the great resignation. No one wants to work. Um, and they're also seeing a drop in college applications. This to me is a 
pool of untapped potential. I'm like, okay, we have a whole bunch of people here that we can train. So we actually have a grant that we propose to NIH to talk about training trans populations in financial literacy and economic development and so forth. So that's overall what we've seen happen with COVID-19 for everybody across the board is you know, higher levels of violence, mental health issues, and then to cope with those mental health issues, higher rates of substance use. This trust study is um, a study that's funded by NIDA, the Institute for Drug uh, Prevention, um, Drug Abuse and Prevention of that. And we have two scales that we use to look at alcohol use and substance use. And the numbers are astronomical. Like I've been doing this type of research for over 20 something years and I've worked with a lot of at-risk populations. We had to literally expand what we consider normal in terms of substance use because their normal would almost, if, if they were presenting in a normal clinic, we would have them in a rehabilitation place immediately. But they were functional right like most of them it's just literally you know daily coping mechanisms daily cannabis use really really high levels of alcohol use um and other uh drugs methamphetamines poppers all these types of things so with COVID-19 I don't think that trans populations are any different from any other population we're seeing an exacerbate yeah really strong impact stress levels and then some of these mental health issues that everybody is concerned about and I love how your data also unpacks those three dimensions of health, right? There's important physical outcomes, but there's also, you have mentioned safety, for example, in the social aspects and how social function through a, an employer. And then stigma and discrimination, that is probably the explanation, not, is not really training and education. The skills are there, but it's either stigma because you transitioned that you cannot go back to the to the work that you were practicing before? Or is it you're not welcome, there's no work protections for trans folks? I think it's both. I think that a lot of trans folks in general at this point, so I think historically people saw trans women working in sex work and trans men, it really wasn't happening or wasn't talked about at least. But I think that far more folks now who are trans men have fallen into that as well. But I think that it has a lot to do with and at this point, employers are like acknowledging that they should be hiring trans folks. But then when you get in there and you're not making sure that all of the employees are trained on trans literacy, then sometimes folks are forced out, management forces them out, and it can just be a really scary place. That takes a change of culture. It's not only hiring the individual, right? Yeah. As we have seen in other topics and in the, in the podcast as well, we have seen that it takes a village to change that culture of stigma and discrimination and that's why we also try to not only discuss those challenges that are remaining but also talk about the achievements that transgender persons have in this past few years right so can you speak to some of those positive spins that we can talk about the trans community yeah, I wanted to say one more thing, though, about the negative side. Of probably yes, yes. I have, I have one more negative. Yes. Another side of COVID um, is it's forced a lot of people to become unemployed. We're talking about it in general, but specifically trans folks are now having to move back into family members' homes who are not supportive. And so then their mental health is declining. Not only now are they unemployed, but now they're living in a not, not a safe space. Um, so I think mental health has had a huge decline. And then we've already talked about it, but on top of it, all these laws that are now suddenly kind of where in the forefront. And it's kind of interesting to see because, you know, it sounds bad, but 
it was almost like before we were being talked about, it was better because people weren't actively attacking us. Now that, you know, social media, the media is talking about us and the experiences are being out there, now we're a target. Yeah. So it's like brought, it put a, it put a spotlight on us in some ways a good way, in other ways not so good. And jumping on from what Ace said, that stigma and discrimination that you were speaking about, we think about it in terms of a community level, but that stigma and discrimination also trickles up to the policies, to the policymakers. And some of these legal, these laws that are in place are very obstructive. I mean, you talked about employment opportunities. If someone trained under this name X uh, Castro, you know, as a lawyer, when they transition and they change their name, it's now difficult to get just the credentialing, right? And there's no systems in place to facilitate that. And if people don't think it's important because of, you know, this thing of the name change, all of these things, it becomes really, really detrimental to their entire livelihood. I also think that um, trans women, I may be wrong, I haven't seen the data, but from folks that I know personally, professionally, it seems like trans women have higher rate of having gone to college at least somewhat than trans men and it seems to me possibly that has to do with like socialization still like i feel like you know even 20 years ago people who were being socialized female weren't as pushed to go to school to go to college after high school and they were kind of pushed into a different direction and so I, i i see that as well in the trans male population i don't work with trans men as much because we can't get them into research because it's really, we, I had one colleague that was doing some research at UM, got funded for it, and got less than 10 trans males to enroll. So the data that I have for trans males is only from adolescence. From, and then after adulthood, I have nothing. Yeah, we kind of just, yeah. like you said, we kind of tuck away and live our I lives. I would love to work with you on, yeah. because it's been gnawing at my brain, this, this gap. Yeah, because there, those of us that are, I guess, present in terms of like the, advocacy world and the medical world etc we're there's so few of us that we're like where's everybody else you know we can't really even find the other people but then we're also frustrated because there isn't the data on us so there's a lot of conversation amongst trans men about why has there not been much studying on prep and it's uh, you know efficacy for trans men um you know they always say it's good for men who have sex with men and trans women it's never about what trans men affect or the effect of trans men or on trans men rather you have to tell your community partners, NIH will not give us money if they don't engage, help us with the, it's, it's a two-way street. They'll try, but if they give the money and it doesn't do anything, it doesn't go into the community, they'll yeah. remove that as a priority. Yeah, I, I did notice that with PrEP because I had, had conversations with folks at Gilead and they're like, well, the, you know, the data shows this. And same with the Florida Health Department. They say, oh, well, we don't have funding specifically for trans men. We haven't done the studies for trans men because there aren't any trans men in the state of Florida living with HIV. And I'm, so, excuse me, but that's, <laughs> that's bullshit. We know there are people here and they're yeah. saying that there aren't. And so I think that, I think it, like you said, it's a two-way street. So trans men have kind of come to expect that there aren't any opportunities for them. There isn't that research being done. So they don't put themselves out there to find that. And so in turn, there is not any more research. So it's kind of like a vicious cycle, right? We have have been talking in the podcast and other episodes as well, how challenging it is after seeing the unique needs of every single sexual minority that just to achieve that statistical power and just to achieve the numbers that you need to get funded and to study, 
the unique challenges of these populations. You have to lump them into one single category, one monolithic category, yeah, and like you realize that you have so many different. Yeah, we always talk about like on a, you know, sometimes you'd fill out a questionnaire on something to maybe get a COVID shot or something, but it'll be like, what's your gender? And it'll say it's like male, female, or transgender. And it's like, there's so like, you just just transgender. That gives you no data. You can't use that. <sighs> now you know my frustration. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then that's the other side of stuff. Maybe you can speak to this more, but I've seen a lot of us online saying specifically, I don't know why CBS, when they go to do a COVID vaccine, it says when they go to log on online, sex assigned at birth. And so people are like, it's just a COVID vaccine. Why do you need that data? And so also there's that fear of discrimination. Why am I going to put this here? And then I'm going to walk in to CVS just for a shot and they're going to, you know, automatically know that I'm trans. They're asking for a lot of extraneous information. I found even like some of those pop-up tents that we're doing screening, they're collecting a lot of data that even I was wondering for a minute, where is this how going. is this relevant? And who, well, and who has access to it and what are they going to do with it? You know, I think, I don't know if this is at the top, but I think we can safely say that a lot of people are making money from COVID. You know, every time there's some human disaster in the world, some people, yeah, and data is valuable. So, yeah, I, I don't know why CVS, but they're probably partnering with some type of marketing firm, I would imagine, because CVS doesn't, if they do research, it's, I've worked with CVS in the past. It's not usually altruistic public health type research. It's it's towards it's yeah. It's yeah. usually my, a profit something. Well, most of them are relying on it anyway. Well, then so I won't so. use CVS's data. Thanks for that. <laughs> you know, they walk in there and um, you know again with the, these laws that they're trying to pass. And you know, I said that it had effects in terms of provider and insurance, but it also meant that if you went into a pharmacy and the pharmacist knew that you were trans, they could say, "I'm not going to give you your testosterone." So why would people disclose that information that could then be stored in their system and used against you? People aren't going to do it. And that just perpetuates that stigma that we have been talking about. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and very sadly, as you mentioned, Ace, before, this type of continued gatekeeping and these barriers that just keep getting bigger just drive those mental health outcomes that we know that are not the best sure, um, in the trans community. Right, because we know a simple letter it says nothing like you could go in there and BS the entire thing to a provider if you're only seeing them once. It's not helping, you know what I mean? It doesn't really prove anything. I think that a lot of folks in general, not just trans folks, would benefit from mental health care, therapists, psychiatrists, etc. But I don't think that that's uh, it's almost like, you know, test taking. It doesn't show the full picture, right? Mm -hmm. It's just one moment of time. Perpetuation of stigma perpetuates hate crimes that perpetuates suicidality which is also a big problem in the community do we have any data yes of course i'm an epidemiologist i have data for days but we i've been working on a systematic review with a colleague dr christopher fenny who's at new college in sarasota and we've been looking at the progression of violence in all transgender populations globally we started this project um, about four years ago what happened was, when I'm black vernacular, what had happened was, when we started that project, we had, I think it was something like 20 something articles that was in the peer reviewed that we could include in the systematic review. Between like 2018 to 2021, there was a massive exponential increase 
in everything report because we were looking at gray literature as well as academic literature so massive increases in reports of violence and also you know academic pieces we attribute to this not only to visibility but that there actually was an, um, a significant escalation in crime and the other thing that was interesting uh, we haven't been able to get this paper out every time we try to get this paper out some other major thing happens big increase in suicide uh, not just ideation suicide complete um and also interestingly the biggest perpetrators law enforcement individuals so people these gate the same gatekeepers who they are the ones who often are the ones doing these violent crimes it's a very interesting fascinating paper i don't know what's going to happen when we find, when we finally publish it but i have spoken to some law enforcement individuals and they're like yes it is it's it's true and the abuse happens incarcerated as well as outside of the jail so it could you know once they get in that's one thing you know for that but even outside if they're just standing on the street minding their own business harassment and violence and we have talked how in society being trans masculine may be a little more favorable than being trans feminine does your data show any differences between trans masculine folks well i don't have regarding violence yeah oh for the violence yeah more more reported among trans women yeah we very few uh trans males in terms of that violence paper i want to say more than 90 of the sample well i saw some data from gosh it, I think it was 2007, maybe, was the data I saw. And they broke down trans women versus trans... Well, their their wording was M to F versus F to M. Mm -hmm. And back in the day. Mm -hmm. And they broke it down into categories of sexual violence while underage, sexual violence as an adult, domestic violence, hate, and maybe some other categories. And all of those categories at that time, based off the population they did, trans men were higher in all of the categories, with the exception of... Hate, hate crimes like specifically hate crimes by essentially by strangers i would imagine and even that was like two percent difference or something like that it wasn't significant so i almost wonder if it kind of the 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 data almost goes back to the lack of people that you're talking to so so from from a person in the community i certainly know far more trans men that have committed suicide than i do trans women like the number is significantly higher so it's just interesting because all the data, for the most part, doesn't show that, right? Like This is why we have to work together. Right. <laughs> I will note trans women do demonstrate a level of resilience that, I, again, if we switch back to the positive, some of these experiences that I had, we were in an interview one time, and I was crying as well as the student who was there. We were both crying. And the person who was doing the interview was fine. But it was so shocking for us to hear some of these accounts. I mean, like really high levels of physical abuse, mental abuse, as well as sexual abuse, that they have just sort of normalized. Just like you were mentioning before, also in your data with substance abuse as well. Those yeah, we coping mechanisms go yeah. spike up. But it is hard at this point in time, at least from my perspective to determine if that has something to do with socialization, right? Like as a person who's trans male, trans man, and you're a socialized female, then you're told that, you know, your feelings, I guess, are more valid and you can express those things versus trans women who were socialized male, they kind of are told to suppress things in general. So I wonder if that has any sort of impact on it. Yeah, and okay. most people I think don't because they don't want to offend people by being, well, you were socialized this, but I think that we'll be able to 
maybe see the data more more clearly, I guess, uh, if we have people that come up and want to have the data reported on them. But as trans children you know, become adults because they weren't always socialized as the sex they were assigned at birth, at least not for very long, maybe really small. you know. That makes absolute sense. And I love how we're bringing together these trains of thought that data is telling a story, but then we're putting the human side, the, the human spin to that story. That makes way more sense. Yeah, and it also, this is more about language, but I feel like people more often use transmasculine now, and you don't see trans feminine as frequently. Usually it's still trans women when referring to folks. I find that interesting. And also some trans men don't even like trans masculine because by definition, the definition is someone who's more male than female. And so that sounds like you're still somewhat female, right? So like for me, I don't would never use that word for myself. Maybe this is going off in a different direction, but like I still use transsexual when I'm referring to myself. I don't use it about others unless they specifically say that that's the word that they use. But I think that, I know we were talking about queer and everything earlier, and I think that it's kind of like reclaiming a, you know words that you find power in and that most accurately define who you are. And so I think that people are afraid of maybe language that they think is going to be offensive, but you should still be able to use it for yourself. What do you think about, I have some women um, in my court, they don't want to be trans women or transsexual or trans anything. They're just women. Like I've had a person say to me like, I paid for this. You know, like I am a woman. I don't want anybody coming around here telling me anything else. So that too, I think is an evolution of language. They want ownership of it. Yeah, it might be blasphemy to you, but I mean, I'm the same way if I, have you know for instance complete a i don't know poll online and it says something like can you put if you're you can check off as many things as you want man woman trans man trans woman etc i would just put man because i don't need to be necessarily identified as that so i think that there's that and then some folks are even saying like i'm a person with like a trans medical history or something like that so they're making it about like you know it's my medical history just like anything else is Mm -hmm. it's not you know them as a person And it's important how language is having that continuous evolution. For example, in the new generations we are seeing here in the podcast, we had recording on menstruation and the younger generations who are working on menstrual justice are using the word menstruators, recognizing that not everybody who has a period self-identifies as a woman. So the entire podcast I was completely surprised as a as a speaker that they were very comfortable using the word menstruators throughout well that's I guess gives me hope because I feel like now with at least the older population who are in I guess more on social media talking about it is even when it comes to carrying a child they get offended and say no it's a, a woman's experience to carry a child and so they say it's like erasing being a woman by saying people who are pregnant or pregnant people or etc and language matters, right? That was exactly why I was I wanted to give a, a positive spin on what other positive experiences are tra- the trans community is ex- is having out there. Yeah. So there, uh, we are seeing those little strides in in language change. We're also seeing representation in the media, as you were saying, that has as you ace were saying. There's yeah. there's a positive and a negative to that, right? There's a spotlight being shined on you, uh, but it, it, it does bring to our attention that trans people are our neighbors and our relatives and our sisters and brothers and part of our community. That's tough, yeah, because it's like, I think, I'm again, I'm 30 years old, but in the trans community, I'm an elder essentially because, yeah, I mean, data-wise, you know, 
trans people, the the aid, the lifespan of a trans person is ex extremely short compared to the rest of the population. And so I think that even in my time, you know, folks have changed where before you go to a gynecologist and it's called women's health, right? And so now like they're changing the language when it comes to that, which I think is a really great thing. Because I think that if you make people comfortable to come there, then they're gonna come there and then their full health is gonna be, you know, considered. And also, I feel like it was almost like every, back when I started transitioning, everyone, the, the goal was to be stealth, regardless. And so I kind of still, I think, have some hang-ups in terms of like what society has told me that is expected of me. And so like, even for me, you know, I had phalloplasty and so I even get concerned sometimes like, oh, people are gonna now know what this scar on my arm means and they have to, I wear it on my arm, right? It's not like it's under my shirt where people only see it when I choose for them to see it. So I guess I even personally kind of battle that, you know, trans, uh, internalized transphobia essentially and also I guess probably that's somewhat to do with misogyny and all those other things for me what I've seen so of course uh, you know at a wider level globally and nationally we've seen more representation I can't it's very difficult for me to talk about strides that we've made because I see so much erosion too at the same time so I'm really trying my best to have a positive spin but I I don't consider the situation that great right now, but positively what I've seen is just in my, I have a community advisory board. So the trust study has a scientific advisory committee, which is everybody like me, the MDs, the PhDs, all of that. And then we have a whole community advisory board, which is, you know, um, everybody else. When I started working with the community advisory board, I had, I was working with Ariana Lind who runs Ariana Center. She couldn't speak English. Ariana had, yes, and her, her English was very broken. Ariana was at the White House two months ago, you know, with um, Carlos Rodriguez from GW. You know, just really, she has a clinic in Puerto Rico. Um, her center is expanding. She like, bought a house up there and everything, right? She, she Yeah, she's doing amazing. Araya Lester is now a trans director. When I started working with her again, I, I just started seeing her, like, you know, Hannah, Camille Lewis. I don't want to forget Yahimo Khan from Survivor's Pathway again another person that when I met was sort of at the grassroots level and now she's a consultant at the Department of Health Miami-Dade so we also have more we have two medical students that are trans at UCF we have a doctoral student at FIU so what and my you know I mentioned that I have a part-time appointment at UCSF the director of the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies also identifies as trans and when I say direct I mean she has R01's big big NIH grants falling out of her pocket right so you know what I see is little sparks of hope because I also see an assimilation into just mainstream yeah. you know it's it's not like you have a trans individual on the team it's like you know it's not a token no it, yeah I, I, it's An still active not a member yeah okay. I wouldn't say it's ideal because I still I think there is tokenization and I think there are people who have come into the transgender world because it seems like something trendy I, I, I I'll be honest and say that but by the same token I, you know, I can keep probably naming a bunch of names. And you know what's interesting? We've been in this journey all together for some time. Um, Asa Radix, we work with from WPATH. He's now the director of WPATH for clinical. So, you know, some amazing, amazing things. I think as everybody was in the struggle, nobody really noticed that we were progressing. 
it was always like I feel like I'm gonna have no money. Nobody's, yeah. in, you know, there's no. But little by little, there was time was passing, and there were these little things that were happening, even in Florida. So, I would say yes, there has been progress, but I want way more. I want like eighty percent more. <laughs> of, yeah, I still yes, that. yes, yeah. yeah. What I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I I hundred percent agree with you. And I was gonna say recently, do you know Rocco from Folks Health? No. Uh, he just had an article the other day that said um, that he's the first, I guess, self-identified trans man who is out, who's in a C-suite role, um, so in like an organization. And so he said something similar to that where, I don't know if he used token, but he said something about like, I'm not a token, I'm an asset. Yeah. So it's not, um, they didn't hire him because he's trans so that they can he can benefit them in that way. They hired him because he can do a really great job and he just so happens to be a trans person. Which should be the way we fight that stigma yeah. of, of, you know, the, the work discrimination that we have been talking about. Yeah. Just just being in, on a, an asset base. How can our listeners be more supportive allies of transgender persons? I guess there's a lot of ways. I think the biggest way is just maybe daily interaction with trans folks it goes back to making them feel included and not that their entire existence is being trans so just acknowledging that they're a whole person and i think that i forgot what i was gonna say <laughs> something else about it was a thought that i had before that oh i didn't know what i was gonna say back to the the police thing i know i'm going way back but i have found that specifically orlando not or not orange county not florida specifically the city of orlando does provide trans training to their recruits. I actually am one of the people that goes in and trains them on, it's more of, a, it's a 101 for sure, mm -hmm. but it's certainly better than what a lot of folks are doing. And so mm -hmm. they, they're taught it, they seem to be listening. I think they are, they're engaging, they're asking questions, which is really great. And then they've also said that in the future, they hope to make it so that I can come back and do kind of like a more than a one-on-one, yeah. <laughs> you know, and train more. And so those are for folks that are actually like actively police officers and make it something that it's like a, I don't know how often they do training, six months a year. Um, that way they actually, you know, have exposure to trans folks and know what that is. And those are steps in the right direction because as, as Elena was mentioning, if the person who is supposed to be protecting you in case of distress, in case of emergency, is also the perpetrator of violence against trans person, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to start breaking that cycle. Yeah, and I think it is, it is a lot of misinformation in terms of the police. They're misinformed. They're they're fearful. They never met. They think they've never met a trans person. They don't know how to talk to a trans person. And so a lot of that is, how do you even interact with a trans person? What pronouns do you use? How do you? What do you refer to them as? So it's a really great opportunity where we can say, you know, they say our policy in the city of Orlando is that you use the name that they provide to you. That's the name they tell you they go by. That's the name you use. The only time that you'll use the name that's on their driver's license is for official documents that are required. And even in that document, when they're hand or not handwriting, I'd imagine typing the notes, the actual note is this is the person's name. This is the name they use. And then the rest of the note is that person's name. And so I think that it's kind of, I guess, eliminating or getting rid of a lot of that fear by just making it so that they know, they know for a fact how to interact with a trans person. And so also I think that there's a lot of conversation around pronouns right now. And so like the idea of asking everyone what their pronouns are. And so I know a lot of people say, well, if you don't know, just ask someone. I don't 
I'm not on that side of things. I don't agree with that stance. I think that for me personally, if someone asks me my pronouns, depending on the setting, I might be offended because I've worked so hard. I've paid so much money mm -hmm. to be seen and cis assumed in society. And so those things I don't really care for. But I think what you can do, which is much better, is when you introduce yourself to someone, you provide your pronouns. If they want to provide theirs, they'll give them back when they introduce themselves. So a part of that conversation was trying to get maybe the Orlando police to maybe put their pronouns on their badge. And so then they oh, yeah. would see that person as a safe person mm -hmm. um, and think that they could have that conversation with them. Just like email normalizes it as well. You, you have your pronouns right then and there. And yeah. a lot of platforms, Zoom right now has your pronouns right then and there when you log in, Instagram, yep, yeah. yep. Can I, do I have time to ask a question? D this issue about criminalization around transactional sex, especially with HIV. Do you talk at all with the police office? Because part of the fear of trans communities that are engaged in commercial sex work is that they could be arrested, not just for prostitution, but also because they're considered vectors of HIV. Yeah. Do they talk about any of that in the training? Because this is a bit. This is why people don't screen, why they don't come in for prep, because they're yeah. they're scared that just this high risk sexual act is now being criminalized. Sure. I should preface by saying, I'm not afforded a lot of time when I go to train them. I'm talking about like okay. I have 20 minutes or less to provide this training, and so and that's including my presentation, them asking questions. Mm -hmm. So and it's not that the people that have invited me there don't want me to have more time. They do. It's just how the structure is built for the recruits. The time it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So as of right now, maybe we'll figure that out. Okay. But more to that is that you know I, I am here from Bliss, and we provide pep and prep. And so I do talk to the police officers about that. And so they do ask questions. Like I had one officer, because I was kind of talking about occupational prep versus, or PEP rather, occupational prep, PEP versus non, and how some of the hospitals around here will only provide occupational PEP. Because whether they will say this publicly or, publicly or not, some of them have some stigma around potentially contracting it through sex because mm -hmm. they think it was your choice, mm -hmm. you had sex, mm -hmm. which we know is not always the case. But anyhow, so I actually had one of the police officers ask, so if I were to get, I don't know, pick somebody up that was in an accident, they were bleeding, and then they maybe got that blood on me, do I then need to go get on PEP? And so then I had to have like a whole conversation with someone who I would have assumed, assumed had some sort of training in the past to know that you getting blood on your arm from someone who is infected with HIV, whether their viral load is suppressed or not, you're not going to contract it. So the conversation's happening, but I wish that they did know more. And again, this is happening in a very niche population, right? So how, what other resources are out there for our general audience who are not in the police force? What, what kind of trainings can they get? How, how can they become better advocates? How can we all become better advocates? Well, well I think, I, I don't know of any formal place, I guess, that offers training to individuals, um, but I can say that I would make myself available to any organization for an organization, a class, etc. And I have done so in the past. I actually went to UPenn and gave their, you know, had a conversation with those folks and, you know, trans competency or just even more in depth if that's something that folks are interested in. I'm, I'm winking to the NIH researcher here. We can def definitely develop some interventions at that level because 
resource resource wise yeah. there's very little in the community that can help the general population not not specifically targeting the trans community but the general population so i came here to get more work um, <laughs> <laughs> essentially no we can right? actually the cdc has a number of rfas out right now looking at creating curriculums and trainings uh, around transgender issues. So there are opportunities and I have a note on my massive to-do list to speak to some of my cab about some of these uh, calls for proposals. So I, I also, and the reason that I know about this is because I also do not know of any formal, what we've done for our study is that our cab does it. Mm -hmm. So when we have like, you know, Shadi's here, she's a new team member. We just had a whole cohort of people that were trained. Um, every time we have a new cohort, our CAB does that training for them. Because I, I don't know of like even an online platform that you can go to. I, I'm not aware of it. No, nothing formally. Nothing formal. My particular better. OK, I don't know if this speaks to your question about better advocates. But one area that I think is going on is that there are services available for trans individuals, right? There's a lot of services, but people, the trans population don't necessarily know about it and don't know how to link to it. And there's also a lot of uh, structural barriers, transportation, money, insurance, blah, 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 all of these types of things. The trust study is actually about linking people to multiple services. So we have a massive, list for Miami-Dade and also for Orange County where we put everything. We even have like dance classes and yoga classes and housing and legal. So yeah, but it's really just to be like, I call myself like a massive social connector. It's really just to be a conduit because a lot of times people come in, they're new to the country, they're new to the state, or they just, you know, don't have a network and they just need some sort of link. So for example, we have here at UCF, there's a primary care clinic that does only serves only transgender patients, Dr. Slamani and Dr. Meta have that clinic. They will email me several, do you have anybody to send here? No one is coming. And they're on a sliding scale. And I know Bliss has services. I know 26 Health. There's a number of agencies. Hope and Help has services. And they have these services subsidized because a lot of them are federally qualified healthcare um, clinics, FQHCs. So it's not, you know, and they have also transportation that they can arrange for, for trans participants. So what I would say is don't be scared. You know, there's things that are available if a person is confused, I think they could contact ACE or they could contact our lab. And we're happy to send out that resource list. It's also available digitally. And every time we meet someone new, like I just met ACE now, I always say, can I add you to my list? Because immediately, and the list is in Spanish and English. And we don't have it in Creole yet. We need, yeah, we need some help around that. We do, we have uh, someone who speaks Creole and then I would say, as a random number, 70% of our staff is bilingual Spanish and English too, which is great. It's amazing. Can you tell us and our listeners a little more about what kind of services do you do in your everyday? I know we started with the introductions and, and even before we started the recording, we we're talking about you walking with folks for name changes and, yeah. and driver's licenses and all of these services. So it goes beyond health as we have, we have been talking about. So let us know more about what you do. Well, like I said, so at the clinic, we are 
well, we're, we're a hybrid company, so a nonprofit with a for-profit. And so the for-profit side is obviously the doctor's office. And there we treat and prevent HIV, hepatitis, and STDs. So you do have to fall into that category in order to come to Bliss. So that means, you know, or to receive assistance, I should say, with the cost. You can come there with your private insurance and pay the cost, whether you want to be on PrEP or you're living with HIV, etc. You can just come for hormones if you have private insurance. If you need to receive assistance, underinsured, uninsured, etc., you would need to be on PrEP, living with HIV, and treatment for Hep C, one of those things. And you know, if you fall 500% or below the federal poverty level, we and you're uninsured, we would cover the cost completely. That goes for labs and um, office visits and mental health is also available. Outside of more like the medical side of things, so we have a program called Transformation, and that program, typically it's eight sessions, sometimes depending on the year, depending on the topics that we've selected, it may be seven to eight. But anyhow, so each topic or each session, each class has its own topic. It could range from safety, where we take them to the police department, virtually lately. Um, and they maybe even do some basic self-defense tactics. They talk about interacting with the police, find out what their rights are. And then sometimes we'll have surgeons that come in, they present on surgery. And so if they graduate that class at the end and they're interested in having their name changed, I then go with them to the courthouse. We submit the paperwork for the name change. If they don't qualify as indigent, then we pay for the cost, which is right now, if you pay with card, $416 in Orange County, plus fingerprinting, which is about $65. Um, is an incredible amount of money, much more than a lot of other states. And so we pay for that if that's something someone's interested in. And then, you know, the goal of that is to create advocates in the community to have more trans men who are talking about their experiences and going to Tallahassee for lobby days and, you know, feeling more confident, joining research. So yeah. the, the, the goal is there. And then we also have a housing program called Sweet Dreams. We made, um, I guess, I can't think of the word, not earned funds. We collected funds through an event that we called Sweet Dreams. And it was a dance where basically these people went in and they danced and then people donated money who they wanted to, you know, who they liked, they voted for essentially. And so we have paired with Aspire Housing. And so we do have a house there, it has four beds and it's available to anyone who's transgender or non-binary and they aren't living with HIV, not in a mental health crisis and not using substances. And I know that that sounds bad. A lot of people think, well, why aren't you targeting those communities? Well, a couple of reasons. The biggest reason is they're is funding for those populations. Mm -hmm. There isn't funding for someone who falls into this criteria specifically. Mm -hmm. Secondly is the way that the housing is set up, there's not there's not medical staff, there's no one overseeing it, so we can't do mental health crisis, substance abuse. And so it's just, you know, the, we've, we identified that as a population in need that didn't have resources otherwise. And then we also have, so right now we have two beds available in that house. And then we also have an insurance program that I manage. And so we, essentially pay for someone to have insurance through the Affordable Care Act up to a certain amount per month, which right now I have a lot of people on it. And I have, I think one person that pays anything towards his premium mm -hmm. after we've paid it. So we connect people to insurance and that insurance does include some trans services. Unfortunately, we can't control exactly what they cover. I know as of right now, they cover hormones, top surgery for removal, and then bottom surgery for anyone. And then they also can use that insurance wherever they want to go. They just have to, you know, be a patient at Bliss. That's it? You're showing? You're do I mean, you're doing a lot. <laughs> that is a long list of fantastic resources yeah. out there. So yeah. we, we will we are very thankful for the work you do. And transportation. Oh, transportation, yeah. yes. Yeah, so unfortunately there are some guidelines that are set by the government as far as like how far you can get someone from. It, it states that somebody, it's 25 miles one way. So 50 mile round trip that we can pick somebody up. 
So, and we'll send a lift for them so they don't have to like get on a bus or be fearful that they're going to get attacked or anything like that. So for our listeners out there who identify as trans or who identify with any other services that you are offering, how can they reach out to Bliss Health? Well, they can start by going to just blisshealth.com. There is a link that says become a patient. They can start there and tell them the steps. If they have any questions outside of that, they want any more specific knowledge, they can certainly reach out to me directly. I will do everything I can to make sure that they get connected to the resources they need. Perfect. And as we have seen the importance also of showing data and demonstrating you know, the presence and the existence and the actual needs of the community, how can they join your studies, Dr. Zayas? Yes, so we have a link as well for recruitment. We currently have one study called Trust, and we're reimbursing anyone who's willing to join up to $400. It would require that they come in, I think, about once a month for six months. Visits are and I think most of those visits actually can be conducted by Zoom now because everything is virtual. So we can post the link, and they can. And also, even if they're not joining the study, as I mentioned before, we have these resource lists that are available that they can have. And I just wanted to say that I'm so happy about the housing project that you have. We have a paper that looks at housing and trans women, and we find that those who do not have stable housing are less likely to be engaged in primary care, any type of care. So their housing status really impacts their overall well-being. It's not just about lodging. It has these downward sequelae that people I don't think always think of. Yeah, so I would say just through the link and then if if you just google my name and UCF it'll it'll come up I'm sure and that's a great way to to just link up with me and the team we're gonna do the work up front for our listeners and we're going to put those links in this episode of the podcast and we would like to thank Ace and Elena for joining us today and educating us and our listeners on everything that we need to know from a very basic perspective on transgender health and the needs and achievements of the transgender community. So I thank you both very much for joining us today. 